Good morning, church. Take a look at these funny words up here on the wall with me. Post-tenebrous Luke's. I saw Pastor Dan wearing a shirt on Tuesday that said post-tenebrous Luke's, and I was pleased. Translation, after darkness, light. This phrase was developed by John Calvin when he was pastoring in Geneva, Switzerland in the days when the Protestant Reformation was in full force and God's word and the gospel were going forth with unprecedented power throughout Europe and great multitudes were being awakened by the light of the glory of God's grace for fallen sinners in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the city of Geneva even adopted Calvin's phrase and printed it on their coins. And they constructed a giant monument in the heart of the city called the Reformation Wall, where these words, post tenebris lux, were inscribed on either side of the statues of four prominent reformers, William Farrell, John Calvin, Theodore Beza, and John Knox, because people were being changed and their entire city was being changed. And if ever a word from scripture so captured the essence of this historical moment, not only in Geneva, but in all of Europe, it was Isaiah chapter nine, verse two. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. But to really understand the Luke's, the light of the Reformation, we have to understand the tenebras, the darkness that came before it. And this particular period of darkness might be traced back to the uh, 5th century AD, the beginning of the Middle Ages, also called the Dark Ages, when Europe had become politically and socially Christian where to avoid being an outcast in society, you had to be, or at least pretend to be, a Christian. And you might think that that would be a good thing, but unfortunately this only produced a lot of fake Christianity and distortions of Christianity and misconceptions about what true Christianity even is because everyone claimed to be a Christian but lived their lives in a thousand different ways. And so what happened was eventually the Roman Catholic Church stepped in and said, Wait a minute, everybody. To really be a good Christian, you have to be baptized into the Catholic Church for the remission of original sins. And you have to do penance for the absolution of present sins. And you have to pray to the saints for their intercession. And you have to do good works to remain in a state of grace and a bunch of other stuff so that hopefully on the last day, you will have proved yourself worthy of heaven. And so the church and their traditions took precedence over the authority of scripture. And they taught salvation as an in tandem work of Jesus plus man rather than a work of Jesus alone. And they preached a gospel that the apostle Paul calls no gospel at all. This was the time when the 19 year old Joan of Arc was put on trial in 1431 for committing what the Catholic Church called the sin of presumption, whereby she 
blasphemously presumed that she was already in an unchanging state of grace and already had salvation, not by works, but through faith in Jesus alone. Such a belief, which we today would call Gospel 101, such assurance of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, had her burned at the stake. And born into this darkness in 1483 was a man named Martin Luther. And there's a particular story from Luther's life which illustrates the tragedy of this gospel absence. Just imagine this, it's the spring of 1505 and the 22-year-old Luther has just completed his master's degree and he's about to become a lawyer. But as he's traveling on his way home from university, he gets caught in a thunderstorm and a lightning bolt literally strikes the ground just a few feet from him. And Martin Luther is so utterly terrified and afraid to die, not so much because dying is scary, but because he is so terrified of the judgment to come after this life because Luther has no certainty regarding his standing with God. He has no way of knowing whether or not he has done good enough in this life to become worthy of heaven. And so Luther runs over to a tree on a hillside and sees a big rock there and throws himself on it crying, help me, Saint Anne, and I'll become a monk. Not help me, God. Not help me, Jesus. Help me, Saint Anne. See, the Luther family prayed to and had a shrine in their home to St. Anne because Martin's father, Hans, was a copper miner and St. Anne was said to be the patron saint of miners. So Luther cries out to the family saint and by God's grace alone, he survives the storm and enters the monastery. And there in the monastery, Luther tries to be the best monk he can possibly be. He spends hours praying each day. He spends hours in the confessional each day. He spends hours studying scripture each day and he fasts and he whips himself to beat his body into submission and he refuses any pleasure, denies himself even the pleasure of a blanket to sleep with because for Luther, His salvation was only as certain as his own sinlessness that he believed he might achieve through this rigorous, white-knuckled discipline of praying and doing penance and inflicting pain and refusing pleasure day after day after day. But even after many years in the monastery, He doubts that any of it really works. And he's still terrified of judgment. And he even begins to hate the very God he is trying to please. Until one day, he's reading in the book of Romans and he comes across the phrase in chapter one, verse 17, that says, the righteous shall live by faith which, by the way, is a phrase that comes right out of the book of Habakkuk, which we looked at about a month ago, if you were here. The righteous shall live by faith. And upon reading this, Luther begins to understand that we are justified, 
considered and declared righteous before God only through faith in our Savior, Jesus, and in what Jesus accomplished on our behalf in his active obedience, living the perfect sinless life we couldn't live in our place and his substitutionary atonement, dying the death we should have died in our place to impute or credit to us his righteousness which covers every believer the moment they receive him and is the basis by which they will be judged on the last day. It's not earned, it's not merited, it's not deserved, it's something Jesus achieved for us and it's something Jesus gives to us. And suddenly, the day of Luther's death was no longer a day he feared, but a day he began to call the happy last day. The happy last day, because now he knew that when he closed his eyes in death, he would open them again in glory and behold his gracious God face to face. That's light into darkness. That's light into darkness, and this is the spark that God used to eventually ignite the flame of the Reformation, setting hearts ablaze and prisoners free. And just as post-Tenebrous Luke's succinctly describes the Reformation and the conversion of Martin Luther, I think it also describes creation. As God spoke into the void, let there be light, and it was so. And in Jesus Christ, who said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. And who, by the Holy Spirit, has shone into our hearts, giving us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And the new heaven and new earth, where this broken, fallen world will pass away and a new, restored world, illuminated by the glory of God, will descend. And throughout the Bible, this theme that there is light after darkness keeps appearing at different times and in different ways and with different emphases. And this morning, in the book of Zephaniah, which we're gonna be looking at, we see this theme appear once again at a unique time and in a unique way and with a unique message for us today. But before we look at the book, let's pray and ask God to help us understand his word. Oh Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, inerrant word this morning. Holy Spirit, please come in a special way and illuminate your word, making it clear and understandable and glorious to our feeble minds and hearts, Lord. Lord, we want to see you this morning, and I pray that you would be pleased to reveal yourself to us here. Amen. So, as I said before, this theme that there is light after darkness appears at a unique time, in a unique way, and with a unique message. So first, a unique time. Chapter one, verse one says, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, king, son of Ammon, king of Judah. 
So all this is taking place during the reign of King Josiah, who reigned in the southern kingdom of Judah from 640 to 609 BC. And if you remember the story of Josiah from 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, this eight-year-old boy takes the throne, eight years old, and eventually becomes a great reformer king who rediscovers the law of Moses and has it read aloud to the people of Judah and destroys, crushes all the idols in high places in the land, and he reinstitutes the observance of the Passover. He basically does everything in his power to bring spiritual reformation to Judah. But we know from history that that didn't happen. Josiah's reforms changed Judah's culture, but not Judah's heart kind of like the Christianization of Europe during the Dark Ages. And so in 586 BC, which is a date we've been saying a lot in these minor prophets, in 586 BC, God sent the Babylonians to destroy and exile Judah because of their sin. So before we even really get into the book of Zephaniah, we know that Judah will reject King Josiah's reforms and will reject God's words spoken through the prophet Zephaniah, which raises the question, if this is so, how will there be light after darkness? Secondly, this theme appears in a unique way in the form of predictive prophecy, which raises the question, how are we to make sense of this predictive prophecy if the historical record shows us not light after darkness, but just more darkness in the Babylonian captivity. But thirdly, this theme appears with a unique message, and that message is this. God will bring about light through a day of devastating darkness. God will bring about light through a day of devastating darkness. And of course, before we get to the light, we begin in darkness. And the first section of the book, after the introduction, is God's coming judgment upon Judah, chapter one, verses two through six. God's coming judgment upon Judah, chapter one, verses two, through six, let me start with verses two and three. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Notice that when God says he will sweep away man and beast, and the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. This is an exact reversal of the creation order. So here God is depicting this flood-like destruction as a kind of undoing of creation itself. And then we learn the reasons for this coming judgment. Verses four through six. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal, or Baal, in the name of the idolatrous priests, along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. 
those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. So here God provides three reasons for this coming judgment. Number one, idolatry. Idolatry. Judah's been worshiping other gods. Baal, a Canaanite and a Phoenician god, and the host of the heavens, the sun, moon, and stars, and Milcom, an Ammonite god. And of course, the Judeans claimed to be worshipers of the one true God, Yahweh, but this syncretistic combination of this worship with pagan worship did not fly with the holy God because he alone is God, and he alone is worthy of worship. And number two, apostasy. Apostasy, verse six says they turned back from following the Lord, meaning they turned around and went the other way. And of course, Judah would have claimed to have just taken a little detour. But that detour was in the opposite direction and was a dead end and had no turnaround. And number three, self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency, verse six, also says that they do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. When we stop praying to God and hearing from God through reading his word and desiring to be in his presence and be filled with his spirit, we prove just how little we actually think God matters to our life at all. The Puritans called this practical atheism. Practical atheism, meaning in theory, you're a theist, but your head is in the clouds because in practice, you're a down-to-earth atheist. And then in the second section of the book, we see God's warning to Judah of the nearness of his judgment. Chapter one, verse seven, through chapter two, verse three. God's warning to Judah of the nearness of his judgment. Chapter one, verse seven, through chapter two, verse three. Let's read verse 7a. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. And this day of the Lord, this day of God's judgment, will be repeated 23 more times throughout the book, and will actually refer to more than one day. Uh, For example, as we keep reading, we'll see that this particular day in view is the Babylonian invasion of Judah, which will happen in just a few decades. But then there's another day that will be talked about that seems to be in the much more distant future. So just keep that in mind as we continue. Uh, Verse 7b, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And what is this sacrifice? It's Judah. And who are the consecrated guests? The Babylonians, whom God has set apart for the task of destroying and exiling Judah because of their sin. And let's let's jump down to verse 12. God says, at that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. 
So firstly, God says that he will search Jerusalem with lamps, which tells us that God is the one who holds the light, and Jerusalem is sitting in darkness, and God's light will expose everyone who hides in the shadows. And secondly, God says that he will punish the men who are complacent. And here this word complacent in the original Hebrew literally means something like congealed dregs. And if you don't know what the word dregs means, it's a word for the sediment that collects, uh, for example, at the bottom of a wine bottle or a, a cup of coffee or tea or hot chocolate. It's the little granular residual bits that sink to the bottom of the cup and kind of just settle there. So, think about this with me. These complacent people are also a kind of self-sufficient people who also do not pray or read God's word or desire to be in God's presence and be filled with his spirit, but they're not just practical atheists. They're sinfully settled apatheists. Sinfully settled apatheists, meaning instead of just not praying, they say, ah, nothing good will come from it if I do, and nothing bad will happen if I don't. And instead of just not reading the Bible, they say, ah, it's not really helpful to me and I've been doing just fine without it. And instead of just not desiring to be in God's presence and be filled with the Spirit, they say, ah, I'm good, I'm good, thanks anyways. Apathetic, indifferent, unconcerned, saying in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. And isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting that one of these symptoms of apathyism is to subconsciously project one's own apathy onto God, assuming that he is apathetic, he is indifferent, he is unconcerned, he's just eh about things. This seems to be another kind of creation reversal. Instead of man in God's image, it's God in man's image. It's viewing God through the lens of self. And then the chapter closes with chilling descriptions of this great day of the Lord, verses 14 through 18. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Now what's interesting here is that Zephaniah is no longer talking about Judah specifically, 
but all the inhabitants of the earth generally, which means that now the day of the Lord in view is the last day, the final judgment upon mankind. So, all, we, all we've seen in Zephaniah so far is just a lot of darkness and bad news. But as one commentator writes, Zephaniah meant in that terrible description of approaching judgments not to drive the people to despair, but to drive them to God. Meaning, rather than retribution, God is seeking restoration. Rather than retribution, God is seeking restoration. And chapter one begins, or chapter two begins in verses one through three. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation. Before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Three things are being emphasized here. Number one, Judah must gather together. They must come together and repent together and seek the Lord together. The emphasis is corporate and not merely individual. And number two, time is of the essence. The word before is repeated four times because after this judgment comes, it will be too late to repent. But now there is still time. And number three, God is angry. These are sinners in the hands of an angry God, and yet a God who loves them still. And I can't help but point out the irony here at the end of verse three. In the words, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord, because that is precisely what Judah's been doing in their sin, hiding from God. But they've been willfully hiding from his light and truth, now they must be forcibly hid from his justice and wrath. And the only way for them to be hidden, here's some more irony, is to come out of hiding, seeking the Lord. And then in the third section of the book, we see God's coming judgment upon Judah's enemies. Chapter two, verses four through 15. God's coming judgment upon Judah's enemies. And in this section, God pronounces judgments upon the Philistines, Carathites, Moabites, Ammonites, Cushites, and Assyrians, including the Ninevites, whose capital city is Nineveh. But God isn't just lumping these nations in with the judgment he's already pronounced upon Judah. And two passages in this section show us why. The first is verses six and seven. Listen to this. He says, and you, O seacoast, he's speaking to the Carathites, and you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. 
the seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah on which they shall graze and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening for the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. And the second passage is verses nine and 10, which says, therefore as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the peoples of the Lord. So, in these two passages, we learn that there will be a remnant of true believers who will survive God's judgment and possess the lands of their enemies. And why? Because God is radically for his people and radically against those who revile them. Like a good father who takes sin done against his children personally. And then in the fourth and final section of the book, we see God's message of hope for Judah and the nations. Chapter three. God's message of hope for Judah and the nations, chapter three. Listen first to God's lamenting words over his daughter, Jerusalem. Verse one and two, he says, woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. And then in verses seven and eight, God says, I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more, all the more, they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. But then, suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere, there is a dramatic shift from judgment to blessing in verse nine. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples, the peoples of every tribe and tongue and nation. I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Question, how will God do this? How is God gonna do this? Well, Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, 
Jesus says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, meaning the things we speak have more to do with what's in our hearts than what's in our mouths, meaning the people who will call upon the name of the Lord with their mouths are people whose hearts have been changed. And God says in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19, and again in chapter 36, and I will give them one heart, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, meaning God is going to give his people from every tribe, tongue, and nation new hearts. So this passage tells us that God is going to radically change his people by giving them new hearts that they may worship and serve him together with one accord. And I think this prophecy was partially fulfilled at Pentecost, but not totally. Not totally. Look at verses 11 through 13. On that day, it's the same day, on that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. I count no less than seven blessings in this passage. Number one, a blessing of forgiveness. He says, on that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. And number two, a blessing of humility. I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. And number three, a blessing of refuge. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Number four, a blessing of righteousness. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies. Number five, a blessing of provision. They shall graze. Number six, a blessing of rest and lie down. And number seven, a blessing of security. And none shall make them afraid. A blessing of forgiveness, humility, refuge, righteousness, provision, rest, and security. These are promises of blessing for a day still to come. The happy last day. And what more proper response to these promises of blessing than worship? Verses 14 and 15. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Sing aloud. Shout. Rejoice. Exult with all your heart. And verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Oh, child, rejoice 
and sing a new song to the Lord, for he rejoices and sings over you. He sings over you. And so, the book of Zephaniah, which begins with dreadful darkness and sweeping judgments, ends with glorious light and unfathomable blessings. It starts with a threat of judgment day, but ends with a promise of the happy last day. It begins with grave sinning, but ends with great singing. And how does it get there? Two words repeated over 20 times by God in the book. I will. I will do it, God says. I will bring the light. I will give my people new hearts. I will do for my people what they cannot do for themselves. But, as I said earlier, we know from history that just a few decades after this prophecy was given, the Babylonians invaded, destroyed, and exiled Judah, which tells us that Judah did not heed Zephaniah's warnings. So, is the book of Zephaniah really a post-Tenebres Luke's story? Well, while it's true that most of Judah just persisted in sin, some Judeans did repent and return to God. And there was a remnant of true believers that God protected during the Babylonian invasion. And God, in his grace, continued to send prophets to his people in exile in Babylon, and by his grace, some of them repented and turned to him then. And then finally, after 70 years in exile, some of God's people returned to the land of Judah, and under, under the leadership of guys like Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, the city of Jerusalem is rebuilt, and the walls of Jerusalem are rebuilt, and the temple is rebuilt. But even then, it was obvious that many of God's promises were yet to be fulfilled and that God had not yet completed his work of redemption for his people. And not much happened in Judah over the next 400 years until in a little town called Bethlehem, the long-awaited Messiah, Jesus Christ, came into the world. But sadly, he came to his own and they did not receive him. In fact, they put him on trial, charged him with blasphemy, and had him murdered. But little did they know, that fateful day of devastating darkness would go down in history as Good Friday which we're gonna be celebrating this Friday before Easter, right here, 6 p.m. That day would go down in history as Good Friday because this Messiah on that day was bearing in his body on that cross 
the justice of God's wrath against the sins of his people to secure for them that happy last day. And so Zephaniah is absolutely a post-Tenebras Luke story, but only because it's a story within a greater story. A story about the light of the world who came into our darkness and felt the pain of our darkness and bore the consequences of our darkness to give us his light. All other biblical stories are just stories within this story. They're all subplots to this main plot. And it's through the hero of this story that salvation has come to us and to John Calvin and to Martin Luther and to Joan of Arc and to all Christians of all time, including including those Christians who lived before Jesus came, like Zephaniah and King Josiah and Joshua and Moses and Joseph and Jacob and Isaac and Sarah and Abraham and Enoch and Abel and Noah. They were Christians too. They didn't know it, but they were. And here's why. Here's why. The last 10 names I just listed come right out of Hebrews chapter 11, which is sometimes called the faith chapter or the hall of faith. And this chapter is kind of like a hall of fame, but not to immortalize and venerate these people like the Catholic saints, but, well, firstly, in the context, it's to encourage believers to endure in the faith despite faithlessness, failures, and suffering. But also, this chapter shows us and teaches us that the way God has always saved is by grace through faith, through trust in the promises of God. The only thing that changed between the Old Testament and New was the understanding and clarity of the content of those promises that God's people were trusting in. See, the Old Testament believers didn't have all of the details surrounding the Messiah who was to come. Nevertheless, they trusted in God and his promises, and by faith alone, they were justified, considered righteous, and their savior was Jesus. It's always been about Jesus, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, Revelation chapter 13 says. And salvation has always been by grace through faith in God and his promises, whatever those promises looked like at the time, whether 2,000 years before Jesus came with Abraham or 2,000 years after Jesus has already come with us today. Time is no limiting factor on God. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. Jesus has always been the savior. And that is the great thing about biblical Christianity. We are not saved on the basis of a comprehensive understanding of everything or an exhaustive knowledge of anything. A pastor's theology degree has as much bearing on his standing with God as a farmer's pitchfork. To believe otherwise is idolatry. The first reason provided in the book of Zephaniah for God's judgment against Judah. That idol is called capital K, knowledge. I can be saved by what I know. And we also aren't saved on the basis of 
how well we love or serve or give or read our Bibles or pray or preach or anything else we do. That idol is called capital P, performance. I can be saved by what I do. Or how about when we pray to God for forgiveness from sin, but we just don't feel forgiven. And so instead of repenting of our failure to trust that when Jesus says, you are forgiven, we are forgiven, we adopt the worldly advice that we just need to forgive ourselves. Jesus' pronouncement over our souls, it is finished, is not enough. No, this is something we need to do to really feel forgiven, to really be forgiven. That's making feelings with a capital F our idol. I can be saved by how I feel. And hey, this isn't just a problem for Christians. There's a secular version of this as well. The capital A, authenticity idol. What I need to be saved from is not being the true me. I just need to accept myself and love myself and express myself and be the authentic me. That's what I need to be saved from, the inauthentic me. And of course, we know anything we put above God is an idol. Money, food, sex, exercise, our spouses, our kids, our jobs, our grades, our friends, our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram followers, anything we spend all day thinking about and plan our whole lives around. And when we step back and examine our lives, realize that this is the thing I'm living for. This is what I'm living for. The gospel to the idolater says that we will never be satisfied by stuff or people and we will never become satisfactory in and of ourselves to God. And for the secular person, they can't even become good enough for themselves unless their standards are so incredibly low and in which case, great, then they're the types of people with low standards. But Jesus was good enough to satisfy God's perfect standard And when we, along with our idols, should have been crushed, Jesus instead was crushed in our place to satisfy God's wrath against sin and to give us a perfect standing with God. Application, set your mind upon the hope-giving gospel promises of Jesus. Set your mind upon the hope-giving gospel promises of Jesus because salvation will never be found in the mirror and satisfaction will never be found apart from our creator. But trusting in this gospel and our perfect standing with God, which is ours through faith, does not give us a free pass to sin. And if that's what we think, oh cool, I'm totally forgiven already, so I am free to just do whatever I want, then we are failing to recognize that doing whatever we want is not freedom. It is slavery. 
Galatians chapter five, verse one says, for freedom Christ has set us free. God wants freedom for us. Therefore, stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. God wants freedom for us and to willfully return to those enslaving sins of our past is not only like walking back into prison once we've been freed, but it's apostasy. The second reason provided in the book of Zephaniah for God's judgment upon Judah. And I'm not talking about total apostasy, but I am talking about prodigal sons and daughters who through their words or actions or desires deny Jesus and what Jesus purchased for them freedom and righteousness. The gospel to the prodigal, the apostate in attitude says that Jesus experienced abandonment on our behalf so that we might be brought in to the fold, the family of God, and so that he might free us from the sins by which we enslaved ourselves. And I'll say this too, if you have been saved, you need to know that Jesus is never giving up on you. He is never giving up. He is committed to chasing you down. We learn from the book of Jonah, even into the depths of the sea. So before you find yourself in the depths, whatever that looks like, crying out to God for rescue, come home today. But here's the application. Fix your eyes upon the final destination, the happy last day. Fix your eyes upon the final destination, the happy last day. If you were to lose your life today, would you not want to be found on the path that was leading to where you were going, to to where you now are by his grace? And praise God, praise God that the Christian life is not just about where we are going. If it was, then I think we would have license for complacency and apathyism and self-sufficiency, the third reason provided in the book of Zephaniah for God's judgment upon Judah. And look, we know that in many ways this world is not our home and we are still awaiting restoration. But look again at Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2. It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. It doesn't say that the people who walk in darkness will see a great light, though we will. And it doesn't say that a light will shine on those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, though one will. And David, in Psalm 23, didn't say that his confidence as he walked through the valley of the shadow of death was in the hope that he would dwell in the house of the Lord forever, though that is a great hope. He said, I will fear no evil for you are with me now. What's emphasized is the present presence of the light. What's emphasized is that though this world is not our home, This is our Father's world, 
and he is here with us. And the gospel to the self-sufficient says that by God's grace in Jesus, you are a child of a good father, Galatians chapter four, and you are a bride of a heavenly husband, Ephesians chapter five, and you have a parakletos, a consoler, a comforter, a helper, John chapter 14. Application, give your heart to your father, your husband, and your parakletos, who is the Holy Spirit, consoler, comforter, helper. Give your heart to your father, your husband, and your parakletos. Of all the good news of the gospel, I think the greatest news is that God is ours and God is here right now. This is a heavenly reality, is it not? Because isn't that what makes heaven heaven? The presence of God? And here he is. So the book of Zephaniah ultimately points us, I think, to two things. Number one, a terrible day that came 2,600 years ago when God judged Judah through Babylon as a prefigurement and foreshadowing of an even worse day that is to come when God will judge the world. And number two, a glorious day that came 2,000 years ago when Jesus was judged for all who put their faith in him to purchase for them that happy last day which will never end. Meaning, for some, this judgment day is still to come. And if you're here this morning and you know that you do not have a savior, maybe you've been trying to be your own savior, and you know that you are guilty of sin before the holy God who sees all, and you know that you have no hope of spending your eternity with God, then I would urge you, before it's too late, today, to call upon Jesus, repenting of your sin, and asking him to save you, and thanking him for his love and mercy. Do not wait, do not hesitate. Call out to Jesus today. And for the rest of us, and for those who might put their faith in Jesus today. Oh, let us rejoice and let us sing that that judgment day came and went, never to be seen again. Amen? And in closing, I have to confess that I laughed at something a couple weeks ago that I didn't understand. It was the Heidelberg Catechism, just doing a bit of nerdy theology research. Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer number 52. And the question is this, how does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? How does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? And I instinctively laughed because I usually don't associate the idea of judgment with comfort. But then I read the answer. With uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge, Jesus Christ, 
who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and removed the whole curse from me. And I thought, oh wow, that's right. It is immensely comforting to know that the one who is returning to judge the world is the one who was already, already judged for me. And now, in my mind, this answer has infused the word judgment with joy. That light into darkness. And praise God that that's the business he's about. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we just worship you this morning for who you are and for who you have been to a people who have insisted time and time again to walk in darkness and to hide in its shadows. Oh Lord, we thank you that you are the light bringer. We thank you that as we sang earlier, though our sins are many, your mercy is more. Oh, your mercy is more. Is so unutterably more. Oh Lord, I ask that we might be a people who seek you and hide in you and enjoy your presence and are so satisfied by you. For your glory alone. Amen.